Bad News Blues from Lucinda Williams on KRCL 90.9, starting us off tonight. I'm Laura Jones, your host for Radioactive, and that song inspired by tonight's conversation with Lori Rosendahl, part of our Meet the DJ series, and just something you might hear when you tune into Sunday Sagebrush Serenade when she hosts the show every other week. Stick around to find out what inspires her music choices. But what a music is, is it goes to the heart of things. It goes to emotions. And really what I play on my show is I'm really into the lyrics. Lori also tells me that she's got a favorite spider and had more than two dozen of them at one time. So stick around for that. Also on the way this hour, a conversation I had earlier this afternoon with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. We'll talk about the need for more beds for people experiencing homelessness, crime in the capital city, and COVID rates. And I'll dig into a new social capital report from the Utah Foundation with Sean Tigan. It's the measure of a citizen civic engagement in Utah. All right, we're going to get started with fun stuff tonight, and it is time to meet the DJ. My name is Lori. I am one of the co-hosts of the Sunday Sagebrush Serenade. I share the show with Phil, and Phil is on, on alternate Sundays. So I do it one Sunday, he does it the other, and it's from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mountain Time. So how many years have you been doing this show, Lori? Well, I'm not exactly sure how many years I've done Sunday Sage, uh, but it's been a lot. I've been at Carousel since 1998. So I'm coming up on my 24th year. I've had a few shows. Well, but the I subbed for two years. My first two years, I subbed on every show. I was doing <laughs> blues shows and reggae shows and funk shows. I was doing them all. And then I got a Tuesday Breakfast Jam. And I think I did Tuesday Breakfast Jam for about two or three years and then Sunday Sage. So I'm not exactly sure on how many total years, but it's mostly been Sunday Sage. Why did you want to do it in the first place? And you've been doing it for quite a long time, so you obviously still love doing it. Initially, I was a Carousel listener since early 80s. I think it was like 82, 83, and I was a reggae fan. And someone said to me, oh, Carousel's got reggae. And so I turned it on, and that made me a Carousel diehard listener. I, you know, I, then I found out, oh, I'm a blues fan. Oh, I'm a folk music fan. I didn't know that I liked all this other stuff, but Carousel introduced me to it. So that's why I, um, you know, I listened. And that's why when I first started, I was able to sub on so many shows because I was such an avid listener to all the shows. So I already knew what kind of music they played. But the reason I finally made that switch to want to become a DJ is I was married and my husband and I both listened to the radio all the time together. And there was another married couple, Keith and Jody Browning, and they did a, I think, Wednesday breakfast jam. And Byron and I used to say, you know, we could do that. We could do a husband and wife show. Um, but then he died. And I, for a couple of years, couldn't even listen to Carousel because it was very sad. <laughs> and then when I started listening again, I thought, you know what, I could do I could do radio without Byron. So I came down and did it. Well, I've had the pleasure of um, helping you when you do Radiothon on Sunday mm -hmm. Sage. That's how we got to know each other when I started working at KRCL. And 
Like they need folks to help on the weekends for Radiothon. I'm like, well, let's let's go and do Lori's show. And we've gotten to to know each other. And what I've seen is how much passion and love of music you put into your show. And I was curious if you have any rituals um, about putting together a show. And home casting has been different over the course of COVID. So tell us about how you peel back the layers of your show. Okay. So I've done this from the very beginning. Uh, if I am watching a program um, or something and I hear this music that just makes me go, wait a minute, what's that? It's like my brain just tunes into it. I, you know, I suddenly am no longer paying attention to the show. I'm trying to find out who sang that song. Um, and then I add it to my show and I do that in between shows. So that is part of it. I get it from sometimes other programmers. I'll hear something they played that I love and I want to just put on or a, uh, like I said, a show because a lot of the the shows right now, some of the good shows on these cable channels are playing some of the artists that we play. And so it's just so fun, you know, to, to hear um, Iris Dement or Lucinda Williams or Jason Isbell's show up on one of these shows, you know, their songs. So that's, that's part of it. And then another thing is I do a lot of thematic shows around holidays or events and so I will do a lot of research on finding songs about a certain thing. And I'll uh, pull that in. Um, I am not a programmer that you can really easily just, just know before you listen to me what you're going to hear that day. Because <laughs> I really, I don't even know. So it's, it, you know, as I'm putting it together during the week, it's kind of fun to see what I come up with at the end of the two weeks. <laughs> Well, then just describe for folks, um, without naming names, some, give us some words that describe your show then. So I hope my show is really showcasing my love of a lot of variety. So I have acoustic blues. Um, I have uh, some, maybe some rock stuff, but more of the softer rock. Um, I have uh, maybe a little reggae in there occasionally, lots of folk, a lot of Americana. So it's really quite a mix. So I think my show's a little hard to describe. Okay, now let's name names then. Some foundational bands and some new stuff you've discovered. The foundational type stuff was like Nancy Griffith and uh, Bill Morrissey and John Gorka. These are the real folk people from my Christine lab. And that's how I first that that's what used to always just get played on on Sunday Sage. And Phil and I have morphed it more into these other types of music. So now we're playing a lot more Americana. So we're playing Ray Wiley Hubbard, Jason Isbell, uh, Turnpike Troubadours, you know, just all kinds of fun things. So I don't know. And I love good, interesting covers. So I'll play covers. And then I also really like to play local people. And if I was, if when we're back in the studio, I plan to have my live interviews going again, because I, I just love that so much. So that's kind of what my show's like. All right. So now tell us something about yourself that you think listeners would be surprised to know. Okay. I think that they'd be surprised to know that I wanted to be an entomologist. Really? But I couldn't do the math. <laughs> so I couldn't make it through, you know, the science route. 
Um, so I ended up going into business, but no, I love insects. I, uh, when my husband was alive, we had 26 tarantulas. So I actually probably know more about tarantulas than anybody, you know, I think I could say that safely. That's kind of surprising fact, don't you think? Yeah. I, you know, I would <laughs> never have guessed. You've not once let that slip. The tarantulas with me. <laughs> Um, you know, you've mentioned your your late husband a couple of times, and I'm curious about music as uh, a soothing balm and how you um, use music in your show to address what's going on in the world, let alone yourself and your own struggles. Well, I think when it comes to music is, yes, I, I do believe that music can be a soothing balm. It can also take you back to some painful times. So it's not at always a soothing balm, you know, especially if you have a painful memory associated with uh, songs or whatever. So it's, it's both. But what a music is, is it goes to the heart of things. It goes to emotions. And really what I play on my show is I'm really into the lyrics. So I want people to listen for a reason. You know what I mean? And uh, I'm not, I'm probably not the best background music. I don't know. Um, because that's how I listen. So I just assume my listeners listen the way I listen. <laughs> and so there's a whole lot that comes out from these, um, you know, songs about real things. As a volunteer DJ, and especially during the home casting era of COVID, um, you've got to rely on your own collection, not the resources that were at the station. But I know you have thousands, mm -hmm. thousands of CDs, vinyl, cassettes, A-track. Tell people about your extensive collection. Okay. Well, my extensive collection makes my house look like a college kid's dorm room. You got cinder blocks uh, and pine <laughs> boards and, the, and all your music. <laughs> Any place I can stack CDs, I got them. And, uh, you know, I'm not so much in, in fact, my former mother-in-law told used to joke that my house was decorated in early attic, which um, wasn't a compliment. <laughs> but I understand what she means, because I'm not so much into how beautiful the house looks, I'm more into the stuff and it has value for me. And my CDs and records has always had a lot of value. So that's the first thing you notice walking into my house is all this music. Now, when we spoke with Shanna Lee of Saturday Breakfast Jam, she talked about Morrison, her dog, as well as her love of Van Morrison. And I know that you also have um, fur babies. You've got lots of cats. What, tell me about cats in your world. Uh, long ago, again, I've always been a cat person. Well, I'm actually, and I don't want to, I hate to even say cat person because I love dogs too. And I love horses. Oh, I even love bugs. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> If it's a critter, tarantulas, <laughs> I, I don't kill anything except clothes, moths, and mosquitoes. That's it. Otherwise, they get put outside. Nobody gets killed. Anyway, um, so I've always been an animal person uh, and been very, I, I get really very close relationships with them. And then for a while, um, I was part of a cat rescue group. And so that brought a lot of different cats into my life, but I'm a failure at fostering cats because I keep them. Um, <laughs> because once I've nursed some animal back to health, um, yeah. So I have a lot of cats. I have eight cats um, and they're all getting older now. So 
What are their names? Uh, boy, this is going to be hard <laughs> to do. <laughs> Let's see. I have Paris, Figaro, Limon, Jade, Sarouche, um, Polly. Who am I missing? See, this is my problem. I can never remember all their names. Ginger and Fred. There you go. You got them all. Yeah. You got them all. Yeah. Um, what do your family and friends say about you being a KRCL DJ? Uh, so my sister, she is so great because she listens every time I'm on in Nebraska. You know what I mean? So she's, you know, looking me up on the web and, and always there. I have a cousin in Sweden who occasionally listens. That's, you know, eight hour difference. So it's night for her when I'm doing the Sunday Sage. And so I, I think that they've always thought that was really cool. And then my friends... So many of my friends I met through KRCL. So they're already KRCL people. And you know what I mean? It's just, it opened up my world a lot once I became a, a KRCL volunteer all those years ago. I was going to say, what is the power of radio to you? But it really sounds like it's community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, when I was married before I became a widow, um, you know, I worked and I came home and uh, you know, had a, a life with this husband and we listened to the radio and we did things, but we weren't, I wasn't doing things in the whole community that much, but KRCL opened that up for me a lot, um, both with um, going out to different events, let me know things that were going on. Um, it, yeah, it's definitely part of the community and I really see our value in the community. And that's why, I mean, I've been a volunteer almost 24 years. And it's a lot of time and it's been a lot of money over the years for me. Um, so why? Because I just see value, the value both for me intrinsically, but for the community, it just seems too important to let it slip. Well, Lori, thanks for being a volunteer DJ at KRCL for low these many years. I think we should go out with a tune of your choice and Sunday Sagebrush style. What you got? Let's do Jason Isbell's The Last of My Kind. What do you love about that song and dedicate it out to the community? I, I think I like it because sometimes, especially in a in more conservative community like we're in, uh, we can feel a little bit isolated. But that song, it, it you know, it's just there's just more to it. We're not isolated. I think that's what that song's about. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. This was fun. That's Lori Rosendahl, one of two show hosts of Sunday Sagebrush Serenade, Sundays from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. right here on KRCL. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. Looking for a job? Chamber West is holding a job fair from 3 to 6 p.m. Thursday, September 16th at Copper Hills High School. On-site help to update or write your resume and interview coaching available too. More info at chamberwest.com. My name's Richard. I'm the host of a show called I Don't Sound Like Nobody on KRCL. I play 1950s rock and roll and its precursors each and every Friday from 1 to 3 a.m. Join this KRCL Nightbird and our flight crew as we dance the night away every Friday morning from 1 to 3 a.m. only on KRCL 90.9 FM. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in to Radioactive, plugging you into your community with conversations and a playlist to match. Still to come, the Utah Foundation's latest report, The Measure of a Citizen, Civic Engagement in Utah. 
But earlier today, I caught up with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall to talk about crime, homelessness, and COVID. Here's that conversation. My name is Aaron Mendenhall. I get to be the mayor of Salt Lake City, and I do it because I love this place and I love serving the people who live here. You're about halfway through your first term, correct? Got another two years left, I believe. And lots of big topics in those first two years. And so I really wanted to focus on the big three today, homelessness, crime, and COVID. Um, As part of, I think it was the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness, you were initially supportive of turning an existing detox center over on 10th South and 3rd West into more shelter, uh, emergency shelter for the homeless. And then you've rescinded that because you found out the state may be putting even more beds into the capital city. And then Pioneer Pioneer Park Coalition just this week compared the situation at Pioneer Park to Afghanistan. I thought that was a bit much, frankly, did neither issue any good. So where do you stand on the demand versus the supply in Salt Lake City's role in helping to make homelessness um, brief, non-recurring, and uh, something we can transition and folks rare. out of. Yeah, right. You almost perfectly quoted the <laughs> the mission. I was trying to. Was, I was, was trying good. to. Um, Salt Lake City has long been the center of services for homelessness in the state of Utah, and we hope that we will continue to be a nexus of services. We've been a, I think, an exceptional partner in the statewide humanitarian crisis that is homelessness. Uh, Last winter, for example, we had about 1,513 beds in Salt Lake County, and 853 of those were in Salt Lake City alone. We're only 17% of the Salt Lake County population as Salt Lakers, but we uh, support well more than half of the beds in the system, $15 million out of our own taxpayer pockets uh, to support homeless services that are in need in the city and with zero dollars guaranteed to us from the state of Utah, even though South Salt Lake and Midvale both have guaranteed um, support mitigation dollars, which translates into um, officers, police officers that they use to maintain a, a quality of life around the homeless resource centers that they host. So all of that said, um, on August 5th, just not too long ago, I asked the state and county partners and the service providers to do a few things in order for Salt Lake City to continue to be a partner. Um, those four things were, if I can remember them off the top of my head, uh, that these 300 beds, the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness has identified we need, like today, we definitely need before winter starts, 300 additional emergency shelter beds that I support that and that I ask that they not all be located in Salt Lake City, which would tip our bed count well over a thousand at that point. Secondly, that we receive dependable and ongoing support the way that Midville and South Salt Lake do for the quality of life impacts that come with the existence of homeless resource centers in our communities. The third request was that the Downtown Ambassador Program receive state funding, not only Salt Lake City funding, so that we can expand the downtown ambassadors, not just police officers, um, to help with everything from visitors who need directions in the city to businesses who need engagement because, you know, they find people in need of services on their stoop coming into their businesses or those people themselves um, connecting with whatever their needs are in that moment. The fourth request was that 
the state step up with funding to bridge this gap for mental health crisis receiving center. Huntsman will be opening a receiving center in South Salt Lake in 2023, which is the place where when someone is in a mental health crisis, they're not in a criminal state, but they're acting out on the streets um, in a way that the only option right now is for police officers to take them to jail. And jail's not holding people. They're hardly you know, letting people in under those kind of circumstances. And we need a receiving center that actually provides the resources that an individual needs in a circumstance like that. So that was August. Fast forward to about a month later when that, that uh, council meeting happened that you started off with. And I learned about the agenda a couple of hours before the meeting itself. Honestly, I, I wish that I'd had more time with my team to talk about what the proposals on that agenda, specifically the Brooklyn Avenue VOA detox center transitioning to, as it was cast, uh, a potential future winter overflow shelter. Off, right off the bat, Salt Lake City obviously stepped up the last two winters since I've been the mayor and creating and helping create winter shelter option in December and November. Um, I'm a supporter of the need of 300 beds. And I had a change of heart in the hours and days that followed that vote, realizing that uh, this would be, uh, this could be a much more permanent expansion of shelter beds that our city hadn't yet seen movement on any of those four things I requested a month earlier. And then we got wind that not the state, but a service provider is, um, looking to basically privately, uh, acquire another hotel motel in Salt Lake city, um, which would further expand the beds in the city. And so it was a culmination and, um, you know, as a leader, it's, it's kind of hard to say out loud. Um, I had a change of heart, but I, I hope that my sincerity about wanting to really be a part of the solution and continue to be a partner with the state on this crisis was leading uh, me in that meeting that day. But the, the reality that our city continues to be the location for citing almost um, all of the bed expansion that's happening is just untenable for us. Do you feel that this is bad faith on the part of the state uh, players? Um, which, what are you referring to? Well, it seems like a surprise that um, oh. this is going down and another facility. Um, no. And again, cramming into Salt Lake City alone. It begs the question. Majority of overflow. It really begs the question, what should the process be going forward? This is a transaction between two private entities, which is uh, not entirely private entities. They have um, public meetings, but VOA, who owns that building and operates it as a detox center, 70% of the people they serve are, are experiencing homelessness and the sale potentially to shelter the homeless organization, which as you know, owns um, the two homeless resource centers in our city and others. So that's a real estate transaction that can take place if they have the funding to do so. Um, and that's similar to what could be happening with a hotel or a motel between another service provider and a private property owner um, without a public process. But it abs this situation absolutely begs the question, which we must answer with these partners, what will the pro public process be when these private transactions are about to take place? They shelter the homeless 
doesn't have the intention of even submitting a conditional use permit to the city for some time because VOA is going to continue continue to operate that facility. So had it not been for the need um, for a recommendation for state funding of the $3 million, which is a portion of what's needed to acquire it, it would not have come up in the public realm. And that's that's not okay. So yeah, well, I don't I don't feel that this was a nefarious action on the part of the state, but I do think in this new process, this was the very first meeting of this Utah Homeless Council that we've got to define what the process is going to be going forward. What's the latest on the tiny village? Because that is still plugging along. Yes, the Other Side Academy is still plugging along with, I think, both their fundraising aspects and the planning aspects, to be sure. Um, the property of on uh, Indiana Avenue that is city-owned, of course, is a complex piece of property. And so they've been doing their due diligence, and as has the city, in figuring out what would it really take in order to have a healthy, safe, viable community of any sort on that piece of property. Um, I would like to see, as I've always said, which I acknowledge is a, a terribly ambitious goal, but to have some tiny homes open and functioning for this winter as a component of a winter shelter option. Um, it's September and it's feeling, winter's feeling like it's right around the corner. So um, I'm hopeful that we'll have some action, some, um, some product to offer individuals where that might be and, and if it's Indiana Avenue is really in the hands of the city council process at this point and planning commission. Um, but I think that we need to be considering alternative locations in the meantime. Just recently, you and Salt Lake City Police Chief Mike Brown held a press conference at Pioneer Park and said the stats are showing a downward trend. Pioneer Park Coalition, which seems to enjoy throwing stones at you. <laughs> I mean, they have an, uh, a perspective. I don't think it's unique to me, no, but it's true. They are advocating strongly for the quality of life downtown around Pioneer Park. They say that the trends say otherwise. What's the latest on crime in the capital city? And do you feel that you've got enough officers? I know you uh, got the raise and hopefully are starting to fill those vacancies over there at the PD. Full disclosure, used to work there. <laughs> that was a while ago, but good job. Disclosing that, Laura. Um, you had a couple questions in there. I'll try to start at the top. Yeah, we did have a press conference on uh, decreasing and, and some stabilizing crime rates in Salt Lake City, particularly in District 4, which includes Pioneer Park in the downtown area. Um, and then there, there, you know, we have that comp stat data, which is available to anyone any time of day. You can look at it from a citywide perspective, you can zoom in and look at your district. I think you can even shift around those boundaries and look at um, even more granular areas of the city. And you can look at all different types of crime that happen. And so um, every we make that data available on purpose. Um, you might even be partially to thank from your time <laughs> with the department for making that kind of transparency available. And so it's, it's not a surprise that um, that organization in particular, who I think you described it pretty well, is going to take an approach that casts it in a ubiquitous light that uh, things are bad and only getting worse when that isn't actually necessarily the case. And when we see acts of, um, of crime, acts of vulgarity, as uh, was spread on social media, but astonishingly, that individual who recorded it and no one who they shared it with called the police, 
for some time. You'd think that before you go to social media, if you see something happening, you might want to call 911. We really encourage people to do that. We had officers within a block of the location and they could have responded quickly. They want to respond quickly. So to our officer's point, we, we did raise the pay in Salt Lake City to lead the state plus 1% because our starting wages were about 30% lower than the leader in the state. And that was behind many different police departments. Our top out pay was about 12% behind what other departments were paying in the state. So we made that shift. We immediately heard back from officers who had left, but really wanted to be at Salt Lake City. We've rehired seven of them. We have 20, uh, a class right now of 20 coming in. And then we're expecting a lateral class of about 16. Lateral means that they're existing police officers. They're already working somewhere in Utah or elsewhere, and they want to come here. They'd still go through our academy because it's expanded and, and it's a little bit more than other departments do. So we're going in the right direction. I think our crime stats are going in the right direction, but they're not good enough yet. I'm not satisfied. I know Chief Brown's not satisfied. And, and frankly, I think our officers aren't satisfied yet either. So we're going to keep going, keep the recruitments going. And the, the, the more positive and proactive community-based policing that can happen, the better it's going to be for everybody. So if I'm not mistaken, last night, the Salt Lake City Council agreed to support a request to extend the mask mandate in yeah. Salt Lake City schools. Where are we on the data and where do you think we're headed as fall officially starts next Wednesday, Whew. a week from yeah. today? Yeah, so we um, just earlier this week, we hit 20 days of in-school since the first day of school. And we are seeing an updated number as of yesterday from the County Health Department that we have 42.1 positive cases per 10,000 students in Salt Lake City School District, which is dramatically lower than other department or school districts in Salt Lake County. Um, we have about 21,000 students. You can go onto the Salt Lake County Health Department COVID dashboard and you can select by schools, by school district, and then by schools within there. The reporting, which has been in the media a lot in the last week, you know, is, is not the same from district to district, but it's important to notice that we all have different population sizes. Murray District, for example, has about 6,500 students compared to our 21,000. Jordan and Canyons are many times, and, and Granite are much, much larger than ours. So that proportionality is key. The bottom line is our students are healthier, and they are receiving more in-person education because they're wearing masks and they're protected from COVID in a better way. And that's the bottom line. We want kids to be able to be in school. We want parents to be able to go to work because their kids are in school. And it's good all around, not to mention the disproportionate impact that we continue to see with COVID on our BIPOC communities. And now, unfortunately, on our, our youth who don't have an option of a vaccine when they're under 12. So you think lawmakers are going to come after you for the way you've found a way around their ban on mandates? I don't know what the state legislature will do. I think that the data continues to be pretty clear that this is a, a very good thing for the young people who are trying to get an education and for the families and therefore for the economy, which I hope you know speaks to the legislators who have uh, had a beef with our abilities here. But I am I'm doing uh, what that law allows a mayor to do, 
and I'm confident in that interpretation of the state legislation that happened that really said nothing about mayors. Now, whether or not they add that in, um, it remains to be seen, but I know we're doing the right thing. We're on the right side of history with this decision for our people. Well, lastly, today you issued a proclamation, I believe, about Hispanic Heritage Month. Yeah. Why was that important to to do? Oh, my goodness. Well, Utah used to be part of Mexico. We could start there. Uh, but about 21% of the residents of Salt Lake City are Hispanic, Latinx. They are um, just an integral piece of who we are, the, the communities, the families, entrepreneurs, artists, uh, teachers, leaders, um, the youth that are coming up and, and stepping into seats at tables where, you know, when I was born and in our past, there, there weren't enough seats. They're making seats and they're leading. So um, this is an opportunity for a month for us to, you know, People like to, uh, and I encourage people to patronize our local businesses that are Hispanic. And and I had some tacos myself at Love NT today. Go check it out. It's in the old Wiener Schnitzel on North Temple and about 8th West. Um, but let's go deeper and, and talk about the systems that are affecting our Hispanic population's access to the conversation, their ability to thrive as individuals and families, their access to capital to start and operate a business, their access to educational systems. Um, and let's go deeper uh, than just the, the food and the, and the art and the culture and take a month to reflect and then get active about it. That's what my administration's doing. And that is Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Hispanic Heritage Month, as well as a way to provide your feedback to the mayor on a variety of issues, including the ones we spoke of this evening. KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. Weeknights at 6, we plug you into your community. And tonight, I'm going to wrap our conversation side of the show with the Utah Foundation. They're a public policy think tank focusing on data and what it says about who we are, where we are, and where we may want to go in Utah. This week, they've launched their new Utah Social Capital Series. Hi, uh, my name is Sean Teigen. I am Research Director and Vice President at the Utah Foundation, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy research group that's been around for three quarters of a century. Well, last we talked, it was about uh, a home, uh, the wrapping up of a series of reports on homelessness, I believe. And you've just launched a new series that caught my eye. So I had to get you on Zoom and talk about it. It's the new Utah Social Capital Series. So how does the Utah Foundation define social capital? You know, when we're talking about social capital, we're talking about the binds uh, between people and groups of people uh, that uh, they can basically use to benefit themselves and the uh, group uh, as a whole. So these might be some, some uh, connections that I have to a network of people, including people on the Utah Foundation board and other boards that maybe I participate with and my, uh, my coworkers, um, but also maybe a larger group. What are, the, what are the things that Utah Foundation that we are doing, uh, reaching out to the state and reaching out to legislators and, and stakeholders and policymakers and the media to maybe you know, benefit, hopefully, uh, all of us in Utah and you know, around the nation and the world if possible. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can dig into this themselves. But 
When I think of high social capital, I think of folks who are connected politically and are engaging in uh, boards, maybe running for office. They're at the chamber, things like that. What is low social capital? And is there a, a detriment to having? Is there, you know, what are the penalties for having low social capital? You know, I can think of, of one major one is, is, let's say I'm in some sort of a gang. Uh, and and maybe I've got some good connections there with people that are strong, robust connections. However, uh, those connections might influence me to, you know, follow my older brother into doing, you know, uh, tagging some building and I get in trouble and and uh, maybe doing something else that gets me in trouble. And then, you know, possibly I end up in incarcerated in some way and then I'm making some connections there but maybe I didn't do some you know stuff that was too bad to begin with but now I've got these other connections and I'm like yeah man I could be earning a lot more money if I did this and 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 so that that's some of those uh, that's some of the negative social capital there's also just you know lower social capital in terms of you know maybe I and 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 my uh uh, family and the group that I hang out with, we don't really reach out uh, in into groups that that uh, maybe are connected to higher paying jobs. And so I'm I've got some social capital in my group, um, but it's tied into uh, you know lower paying work. And so I have a hard time kind of uh, climbing the 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 social I guess the the ladder to success because of that kind of lower. Um, uh, uh, maybe less really robust uh, uh, positive social capital. There's so many different angles or perspectives on social capital. So you're going to break it into seven reports. And this first one is civic engagement. And by that, I'm guessing you're talking about turning out for elections and voting, serving on boards, maybe even running for office. Yeah. So, you know, we limited it to three uh, to three measures for this first group. We've got about, you know, give or take 30 uh, metrics over these seven uh, categories. And we limited it to the three. And, and part of the reason why we limited it to these three is because we've got pretty good data. Uh, they the, the data are updated on a pretty regular basis. so We can see if we're doing, uh, you know, improving over time and they're state by state data. So we can compare ourselves to the mountain states and the and the larger population. So we yeah, we look at we look at voting, which is a big one. Uh, we look at uh, uh, participation in uh, public meetings. So, you know, if, if, if how many how many times in the past year have I gone to a city council meeting, or how many times have I spoken, maybe at the legislature for something? Um, and then the last one is advocacy organizations. It's how many how many advocacy organizations per hundred thousand people uh, do we have in Utah compared to some of their surrounding states and the nation at large? So, give us some of your key findings on these three topics within this report. You know, in terms of uh, public meetings, we're awesome. Like Utahns, uh, we get out and attend public meetings. We want to know what's going on and we want to voice our opinion at these meetings. Uh, we're only beat out by a couple of states across the nation in terms of that participation. Uh, in, in terms of voting, we've actually, we had been pretty bad uh, in, in, terms of, in terms of showing up to vote. We used to, a long time ago, we were really good. We, we got pretty lackadaisical on this and we, had, and we hadn't been voting for a while. But with, you know, with the mail-in voting, with some pretty exciting stuff maybe on the ballot um, in, in 2018, people got out and started voting. Um, and, and we jumped ahead of a bunch of states. We, we in fact, been behind all of our mountain state neighbors. Uh, we jumped ahead of a bunch of those and a bunch of other states. Um, but uh, during the 2020 election, again, we, we we weren't as inspired to get out and vote, and we dropped down a little bit, not as far uh, back as we had been, but we, we still dropped down a little bit, unfortunately, again. 
Oh, and then, and then last of all, in terms of these advocacy organizations, this is a tricky one. You know, sometimes you, you are using a metric because the data are, are good, but maybe they don't tell you a ton. Um, but in terms of advocacy organizations, we don't have a lot of those uh, per capita in Utah. So we, we've got about 2.6 uh, for, for every 100,000 people. That can mean it could be based upon a lot of different factors. Uh, we, we could have a few advocacy organizations, but they're super robust and they're super powerful and they get a lot of people listening to them and a lot of people engaged. Um, uh, so that one's a little bit tricky, but, but we're still kind of low overall in terms of, of the number of, ad, of advocacy organizations that we have in Utah. Okay, so this broad umbrella of civic engagement, you looked at voter turnout, meeting attendance, and advocacy groups. How are we doing in terms of being engaged as citizens here in Utah? And what's the plus or minus on whether that's good or bad? You know, so so it looks like we are uh, maybe uh, improving a little bit, and particularly if you look over the past uh, few election cycles uh, for our voting. So, um, and then, and then with uh, with meeting participation, we're doing pretty well with these advocacy organizations. Which you know, you know it, it, like I say, there are some caveats there to how great that is. Uh, we're we're a little bit lower on the end of the spectrum, but overall, in terms of civic engagement, I think we're just somewhere in the middle. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, but uh, uh, there are some reports that we've got uh, coming up uh, parts two through seven, where we are seriously rocking. Like we, we do really well, um, on a lot of metrics, but then, you know, like everything in Utah, it seems like we're at the top or the bottom on so many things. And we're going to, we're going to see some, we're going to see some metrics where it's like, oh my goodness, we're doing really, really great here. We're in the top five in the nation. Uh, oh, and then here's another metric related to another social capital measure. And we're in the bottom five of the nation. I mean, it's, it's a, it's kind of a weird thing that we've, that we've got going on here in Utah. Sean, Tigan of the Utah Foundation check tonight's show notes for a link to their new report, the first in a series on social capital in Utah, The Measure of a Citizen, Civic Engagement in Utah. 